This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 58 of the History Files for the fourth week of June 2016. Last week we went out on a limb and recorded the main part of the show live at the Brass Screw Steampunk Convention in Port Townsend. Let us know how you feel about that. If we get enough positive feedback, we'll do it again in a future con- convention. Today, we'll also be a little bit different as our main topic is a bit more personal than usual. But before we jump into that, let's take a poke at a few newsworthy items. June 23, 1772. A judgment in the Somerset case holds that slavery is not supported by common law and therefore abolished in England. Sadly, the ambiguity of this ruling meant that it would be more than 100 years more for the abolition of slavery totally to take effect throughout the rest of the British Empire. Hmm. I thought they'd uh, outlawed it in the 1830s. They, well, the, the the complete abolition act goes through in the 1830s, but um, in 17, but in uh, 1772, this Somerset hmm. case okay. actually said, "Hey, wait a minute, common law doesn't support it." But yeah, that was as far as it went. Okay. June 22, 1775, the first issue of paper money in the in the United States, mostly to pay for military expenses. There had been types of paper currency before. The Chinese had tried this some centuries before this, as had the French during the Mississippi bubble. Usually paper money was script issued out by banks based upon the idea that the banknote represented debt and could be collected at the bank in cash money. Unfortunately for holders, the notes were worth less and less the further you were from the bank which issued the note and they became discounted. This first incarnation to be actual legal tender by the United States termed continental dollars ended up as do most paper currencies and not worth a continental. June 18, 1815. Napoleon Bonaparte's French army clashes with Wellington's Anglo forces and Blucher's Prussians at the Battle of Waterloo. The result marks the end of Bonaparte's reign and a long series of European wars, ushering in a century of relative peace broken only by such minor events as the Crimean War in the 1850s, the Wars of Italian Unification in the late 1850s, and Bismarck's Wars of Unification of Germany from 1864 to 1870. June 20, 1837, Britain had shared a monarch with Hanover in Germany from 1714 to 1837 when Victoria became Queen of England. Unfortunately, according to Salic law, a probably forged French document, she was excluded from Hanoverian succession. 
She occupied the throne of England in, and Scotland uh, until 1900, her name permanently affixed to the latter two-thirds of the 19th century. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For film, TV, literature, and pop culture and whatnot, first of all, on YouTube, uh, we have a nice piece from the Great War series. So have you, if you've ever seen those images of World War I ships with the zebra on acid crazy paint jobs, did they do that in World War II also? No. Just World War One. Yeah, if, and if you wondered what possessed them to ruin a good paint job like that, well, it was a deliberate attempt to ruin a paint job, ruin the lines of the ship, actually. Check out the May 28th episode of The Great War on Dazzle Camouflage for all the answers. In the world of podcasting, I've been listening to The Way I Heard It with Mike Rowe. The more I learn about Mr. Rowe, the more I like him. I've never watched his TV shows. Have you ever seen his TV shows? Nope. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to to um, every episode of his very short and to the point podcast if you liked Paul Harvey you'll like this it's the same kind of deal where he tells you a story doesn't give you the punchline basically and if you're a history buff you'll you'll probably figure out things you know as you as you go through but they're they're good I'm really enjoying them and then uh, in uh, as far as websites go, I've been following the public domain review for a while I found the site when I was looking for public domain images ended up subscribing to their newsletter because every blog post of theirs is a, a window on the past and often something that I've never heard about or seen. So this week, one of the blog entries deals with uh, the exact events of 200 years ago. The year without a summer was uh, results from the explosive eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia and the ex ensuing ash clouds that blanketed much of the globe which caused widespread crop failure, which caused starvation and disease on a pretty epic scale. Uh, lasted for up to three years in some areas. I mean, this is on the level of the Black Plague. It was really, really bad. Um, in the middle of this upheaval, a group of Bohemians retreated to a villa on the shores of Lake Geneva, people you probably heard of, and uh, they were housebound by the inclement weather and resorted to all kinds of entertainments among themselves, some not suitable for a mixed company. The most productive of their entertainments was a novel writing contest that gave us Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So I highly recommend this piece by Gillen Darcy Wood called Frankenstein, the Baroness and the Climate Refugees of 1816. And it looks at the nightmare of the starving masses through the lens of this early sci-fi novel. Now, if you'd like to learn more about that volcanic winter disaster, why not pick up Gillen Wood's book, Tambora, The Eruption That Changed the World. History Files listeners can pick it up as a free audio download with a free 30-day trial for new subscribers by going to www.audibletrial.com slash historyfiles. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love. History lives again. Our main topic for today is actually a letter written by my grandfather, Ensel Mendel Tenor, to his mother. 
Uh, it was written uh, while he was a sailor aboard the USS New Jersey BB-16. Not the later World War II version, but the one that was uh, on World War I. Uh, he wrote this while he was in port in Boston in 1916. I thought since it was just 100 years old, and I actually missed the centenary, centenary, sorry about that, by a couple of months, unfortunately, it would be of interest considering that we talked about the Battle of Jutland just a few weeks ago. So here it is. The dateline is USS New Jersey, Navy Yard, Boston, Mass, April 24, 1916. Dear Mother, in order that I might uphold that T.L. Lucille gave you for me, I will endeavor for the benefit of my relations who, have, who may be interested in my life in the Navy to give a slight description of the Navy, its personnel, yards, auxiliaries, and maneuvers. First of all, I will briefly mention battleships in general. They're divided into four divisions, viz. first, second, third, and fourth, and are classed according to size and age. The first division ships are the Wyoming, the fleet flagship, Arkansas, first division flagship, New York, and Texas. The second division ships are the Florida flagship, Delaware, Utah, and Michigan. The third division ships are the New Jersey flagship, Nebraska, which holds the red E efficiency, Virginia, and Rhode Island. The 4th Division ships are the Louisiana flagship, Kansas, and Connecticut. Some of the ships are in ordinary reserve, are the Georgia, Minnesota, and the Mississippi, and a few of the other old rattle traps that the U.S. boasts of as first-line battleships. The ships are very large and compact, but the 1st, 2nd Division ships are, more, are the more graceful and speedy than the 3rd and 4th Division ships. The Arkansas mounts 14 12-inch guns and some 20 or more 5-inch secondary defense guns, besides the submerged torpedo tubes and anti-aircraft guns. The other big ships have the same except that they have less 12-inch guns than the Arky. All the big guns are mounted in turrets, two guns in each, and the turrets extend from the main deck to the platform and splinter decks below. In the 3rd Division ships, the guns are somewhat differently arranged as we carry only four 12-inch guns which are mounted in two turrets, one forward and one aft. The 8-inch guns are mounted on the superposed turrets on top of the 12-inch and in waist turrets, one on each side of the ship. We have 26-inch secondary defense guns and also the torpedo tubes. In the 4th Division they have no superposed turrets and the 8-inch guns are mounted in two turrets, one on each side of the ship. The engines on the New Jersey are immense. They are called four-cylinder triple expansion inverted reciprocating engines. The cylinder dimensions are as follows. Forward, low pressure, 44-inch diameter. High pressure, 33-inch diameter. Intermediate pressure, 37-inch diameter. After, the after low pressure, 44-inch diameter and the stroke is 48 inches. Some engines, and their greatest speed is about 125 revolutions per minute, which is a little better than 19 knots, but the highest speed we made in our last full power trial was 18.5 knots, but I hardly think she'll ever make that again. 
We're in dry dock now and you can get a very clear idea of her size when you can see all of her that is submerged when afloat. Her propellers, keel, keelson plates, and the very heavy armor with which she is plated. The daily routine in port for the engineer's force, I will mention that of the deck force later, begins with up all hammocks at 6.45 a.m., then breakfast at 7.30, turn to at 8.15, and knock off at 11.30. Dinner at 12 meridian, and turn to again at 1.15 p.m., and knock off at 4 p.m. First liberty call for engineer's force is at 4.30 p.m., and liberty is at is up at 8.30 a.m. the following morning. Supper is at 6 p.m. and hammocks goes at 7.30. You can turn in at any time after hammocks. First call goes at 8.55 p.m., tattoo at 9 p.m., and last but not least, taps at 9.05 p.m., and after that all must be quiet and everybody but those on watch turned in. The deckhands arise at the bright and early hour of 5 a.m. and are immediately, upon getting their hammocks stowed, perform the arduous task of scrubbing down the decks. After that is accomplished, they shine the bright work until time for breakfast, at, which is usually a frugal meal, and afterwards they perform their toilet and lounge until 8.15. Then they shine more bright work clean, pardon me, then they shine more bright work clean their compartments and clamp down, wet and mop, the decks, then shift to clean clothes for quarters. I think I forgot to state that the engineers who are standing on auxiliary watch go to quarters, but not those who are turning to. After quarters, the swab resumes his duties, which he hates but no one blames him, for he is never through. The main difference between a swab and one of the black gang is that the latter works hard in his allotted time, but the former never works hard and is consequently never through. His work all through the day is a constant repetition of what he just did a few hours previous to that at which he is now working. Also, he may be called upon at any time of the day or night to do extra work in that, that might happen along. But the engineer does his four hours watch underway and then sleeps and eats eight hours before he is again called upon for his efforts in the propulsion of the ship. My duties are somewhat different than any of the above. I'm in the log room of the engineer's office, and the engineer officer has been pleased with my work and behavior and has recommended me for fireman first class. <clears throat> it was also he who encouraged me to try the Annapolis exams, and since they are over, has reinstated me in the log room instead of putting me below. If he is satisfied, I may say that I am, and that I will do all in my power to uphold my good standard. You have mostly heard me speak of the pleasant side of life in the Navy, so far, but now, in fairness to any male person who might hear this and take it into his head to enlist, let me speak of the other side of life. When you have been cruising at some seemingly foolish maneuvers for a week or two, and then come into port and not get liberty, when you come into the Navy Yard and have to work from 5.30 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. the next morning to get ready for and the next morning get ready for a board of inspection and survey and have to work until 6.30 p.m. when you were supposed to go on liberty at 1.30 p.m. These all go on the wrong side of the cruise ledger. But these are few and the least of many, but most important of all is the bum commissary. Oh, what meals we, he puts out. 
He is so bad that the officer of the deck has to inspect the messes before pipe down at every meal. It is not so all the time, nor on all the ships, but it is most of the time on most of all the ships all the time. The last sentence is made for emphasis. Does it work? Some of the most important ports of call for the fleet are in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Old Point, Charleston, South Carolina, Portland, Santiago, Havana, Guantanamo Bay, Culebra, USWI, I think he meant US Virgin Islands, not W, Newport, and Black Island, Rhode Island. We coal again tomorrow and Friday, taking on some 1,500 tons of coal, the so-called black diamonds. Our total coal capacity is 19,090 tons of coal, but I have seen us coal so much that the floor plates of the fire rooms were piled high with it. I don't know as yet how I made out on the exams, but I expect the returns from Washington in about two more weeks. I hope they are satisfactory because I'd hate to fail after all these hard months of study. You can see by the difference in the ink that this letter has been written in installments, but I haven't had time to write it all at once. The type need cleaning, and I must do that tomorrow. I cleaned the other machine completely today, taking it almost completely apart. As we have to arise about 4.30 a.m. tomorrow, I must turn in early tonight because it is one of the, our busiest days when we coal ship. Hoping that this letter is not as bad as I think it is, I say goodbye and love to all. Your affectionate son, Ensel. There's a fair amount of information on the Old New Jersey or BB-16 out there from Wikipedia and various other places. She was launched in 1904. She was a rather unusual ship in that she had an experimental set of superposed turrets, as I mentioned, as were mentioned in the letter. These were smaller gun turrets mounted on top of the larger gun turret. In practice, this proved to be pretty unused, unusable as the concussion from the big guns made life inside the smaller, higher turrets pretty much unbearable. Thus, it was abandoned in later ships. The New Jersey was part of Theodore Roosevelt's Great White Fleet, which circumnavigated the world in 1907 and 8, and she also took part in the occupation of Veracruz, Mexico, in 1914. Most of her World War I wartime duty was as a training vessel, but she made her way across the Atlantic several times to ferry American soldiers home from France after the war. Also of note is that she was one of the battleships which were sunk from the air by Billy Mitchell's Army Air Corps flyers in 1923, which is a rather sad fate for a grand old ship. So you're saying she was used for target practice? She was used for target practice. Oh. Yeah, Billy Mitchell wanted to prove that uh, naval ships that were anchored and standing still were good targets for aerial bombing. Uh, it took a few years for them to actually get the practice down <laughs> so they could once in a while hit moving ships like they did in World War II. But he, he proved the, uh, the point that it could be done. And um, these poor old ships, these old battle wagons from the turn of the century were, were uh, sacrificed to that experiment. So um, what, so, uh, let's see, so she was part of the Great White Fleet. Mm -hmm. And she went around the world, she circumnavigated the world. 1907 to 1908. Did she go to Cuba? 
she'd been to Cuba several times, but she wasn't hadn't been built yet for the Spanish American War. So she was yeah launched in nineteen oh four. Okay, interesting. Yeah, interesting. And so we're also going to include some photographs of my grandfather. Well, we're going to put them on your blog. Right, on the blog. Yeah. And so if you want to check that out, you can look at those. And the header picture I've got for this episode of the podcast is actually a picture of her, obviously, in that dazzle paint that we mentioned earlier in the... uh, in the media section. Yeah, it's a little bit subdued. I've seen some dazzle pattern that's really wild and insane looking. Yeah, usually when people think dazzle pattern, they're thinking of those crazy LSD zebra stripe things. <laughs> but uh, this but, is a little more subtle. Yeah. But I also want to mention that uh, he joined the Navy in 1914. And uh, by 1919, however, uh, he was a chief. Uh, helps to do that when you're in the... Uh, you know, in the middle of a war that and a huge expansion. But uh, he was only 21 years old when he became a chief, which is pretty darn impressive. Uh, obviously, he, because he was a chief at that point, it meant that he did not pass his Annapolis exams. Um, I think my, I think life would have been very different. I probably wouldn't be here if he had passed his Annapolis exams because he met my grandmother uh, during the war as a chief rather than as a rather than as an officer so things would have been different Hmm. interesting basically i'm trying to pad things out or this is going to be a super short episode i'm trying to think of questions to ask Um, it's interesting to think of you know nowadays you've got you know um nuclear powered steam turbine ships and straight up nukes and and ships that run on diesel, and here we are in the 20th century with coal fire. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. World War One was definitely. Steamers. Yeah, I don't think the British started going to petroleum-fired ships until about 1915. I think the the Elizabeth class were the first uh, mm-hmm. oil-fired, but the ones that we sent to our newer ships that we sent to uh, Britain. Is a part of the World War One effort of the great, um, the the uh, um, was it the not the great the Grand Fleet? Um, they were coal fired because we couldn't uh, they couldn't really supply petroleum, the oil fired ships. We, we had some new ones, some good new ones like the Texas and whatnot, that were uh, oil fired at the time, and but we couldn't send those as I recall because British couldn't supply them. They could supply coal though. Hmm. Also, you know, and when he says the black gang, he's not talking about somebody's skin color. He's talking about the fact that when you are shoveling coal in an engine room, you end up covered in soot. Absolutely. Inside and out, unfortunately. They got a fair amount of coal dust in their lungs, too. And it was just, it just, there was a reason they were called the black gang. Yeah. It was was not a happy job. They're coal miners, for all intents and purposes. They were... Uh, shoveling coal day in and day out. And one thing, too, though, the black gang, the engineering guys, they generally won the boxing contests. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> wonder why. Shoveling coal for eight hours a day. Get to do that to you. Yeah. Um, my grandfather, because he actually had a little bit of college, he'd actually started university before he joined. He got tired of having to pay for his university, so he joined the Navy. Um, long before the GI Bill and all. At any rate, he... Uh, because he had a university education, 
that shows why the officers had taken an interest in him and they um, kicked him up from being just one of the I don't think he shoveled a coal well, you know a shovel full of coal in his life um, but he uh, did become a yeoman and he was doing uh, doing paperwork the the letters typewritten and you know not handwritten thank goodness I doubt if I could have uh, transcribed it because we have lost our ability to actually read proper cursive writing I'll, I'll scan it and unfortunately what the copy we have is a terrible xerox from probably the 70s of of the original of the original so i will scan that and try to clean it up make it a little more legible and we'll put that with the pictures on the blog yep so did you ever meet your grandfather oh yeah i know him fairly well uh didn't get a chance to get to know him really really well because i had to share him with well, 28 cousins. <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot of cousins on that side. But he didn't live that far away from us. And uh, he was a really a kindly old gent. In fact, he looked a little bit like uh, Colonel Sanders because he, he always had a mustache and a goatee and uh, smoked cigars. Remember that? But there was one funny little anecdote that my mother told me. And her mother's father had been a sailor as well. He'd been a, a merchant sailor. In fact, he ran away uh, to go to sea when he was 12 years old and was a cabin boy and a whaler. He was raised in, had been raised in Birkenhead, England, which is right across the river from Liverpool. This had to have been in the late 19th century. Oh, yeah, then. that was in the 1860s. Oh, that wait he, Yeah, that he ran away. To, <laughs> For those of but, you who know Gordon at all, you know that the generation his, generations in his family are long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when he says, you know, Grandpa, you could be talking somebody who fought in the Indian Wars. Not quite, but close. Great-grandpas <laughs> did. Great-grandpas did that. At any rate, uh, so my great-grandfather, uh, who's uh, Tom, um, George Black, had been a sailor, and he absolutely forbade his daughters to date sailors. So when my grandfather, had, he had met my grandmother, Helen Black, at, uh, at a, some, a USO show or something like that, he had to go to the YMCA. When he got liberty, he'd go to the YMCA in uniform, change into civilian clothes, and then go visit my grandmother and uh so he could talk to <laughs> to the old man without having to fear too much about being found out i guess he was pretty livid when he she got married to this guy and it turned out he was a sailor at least he was a chief but he uh got out uh 1919 well pardon me would have been at the very end of the war 1918 because my mother was born in june of 1919 so they had to have been married for at least a few months in 1918, I hope. I have to find out what that <laughs> It was okay. At any rate, I just thought it was funny that he had to change clothes because his future father-in-law couldn't stand sailors. So anyway, I thought that might be interesting to people. This is going to be kind of a short yeah. uh, episode because of that. But I think because, well, it's 100 years old, and it relates to the Battle of Jutland, or Jutland, whatever you want to call it, the Skagerrak. Uh, I, thought it, I thought it interesting because he does go into a brief description of uh, what people's, um, you know, 
duties yeah, were. Yeah, a little daily life moment. Well, that's fun. That's kind of a time capsule. Well, if you enjoy this show, be sure to check out some of our other outstanding programs over at SciCon, such as our daily tech news roundup Geek Days, the illuminating Sunday morning Coffee with Jeff, or our new show Take 5, where Anthony Hobday and Jack Marshall talk for five minutes about a topic randomly chosen by the listener. Show notes for this episode can be found at SciCon.fm slash THF58, and many of our episodes have supplemental entries over at Gordon's History Ramblings blog, including this one. You can contact us with your questions or comments at historyfilesshow at gmail.com. Of course, we try to do our research and share the most current information on any topic, but we don't claim to be the last word on any subject. We welcome input from you, especially if you have information we don't. Special thanks to reposters and retweeters and everybody who listens. The History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. If you'd like to show a little extra support in a material way, head over to our store at Zazzle, pick up a mug or a t-shirt. And that about does it. Thank you again for joining us on the History Files, and uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And I look forward to being back here, same time, same station, uh, next week. And in the meantime, enjoy life, and join us again next week for The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash THF. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.